The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. episode of the Brandon Peters show. I'm Brandon. On this show, Scott Mendelson from Forbes joins me for a discussion of the 2003 film Shanghai Nights. But before that, whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, thank you for checking this show out. As with any podcast, I hope you stick around to feel it out a little bit and enjoy the evolution of the program. I recommend you check out my introduction episode I posted to get a bit of background on the plans for the show and ideally how it will roll out. The Brandon Peters Show will be providing a variety of content, and this is just one avenue of such content. Again, thanks for streaming in, and I look forward to sharing this adventure with you. Uh, My first guest on the show is a writer for Forbes and the premier box office analyst on the globe. But when I met him, he was a writer for Valley Scene magazine. Thank you for joining me on this inaugural effort, Mr. Scott Mendelson. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be your very first guest. Yes, yes. It all starts with Scott, really. I mean, we met long ago, but in this avenue, definitely stems back from the old Mendelssohn's memos days. Back when I was cool. The, oh, you were the, the staunch defender of blockbuster cinema? Or is that what someone called you? <laughs> yes, that was a, a champion of the mainstream, I think. Champion of the mainstream, yeah. You're like, no, Basically, that gets clicked. like drive as much as some people did Oh, right, right. Of course, nowadays, my hating Midnight in Paris makes me cool on film Twitter, but whatever. Oh, wow. We're going to talk about Owen Wilson today again, too. <laughs> We're talking about a... As he discovers historical figures. Wow. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Cool. I met you long ago. We were both working at... A place, I believe it was 2005. It was when I first moved to Los Angeles. You were my first new friend I met out there. We worked at a DVD quality control place, pre-Blu-ray at the time, called International Quality Control, called IQC. And I remember I met you because you sounded like someone like me talking about movies, and you were open to talk about movies, and it felt like people didn't always talk about movies like that. But I instantly was drawn to you, and we just like, I don't know, we hit it off pretty easily right away more or less um you were probably my first regular social call i had been living there eh, about six months before before uh, beforehand i had moved out in november of 2004 and i don't know if it was the first social call we did but one of the first is we it seemed like a good idea at the time we went to the man's chinese theater and watch the entire first season of 24. Oh, yes! In a day. Uh, <laughs> it was a full-day event to plug the show's debut in syndication. Yes. This was right around the fifth season, give or take. But, but, but we were drawn there because we were offered, they said that Kiefer Sutherland, Carlos Bernard, the cast of the show, would be stopping by in the middle of the night to see everybody. They did not. They did. And then it was John Kassar, the producer of the show or director of a lot of episodes. He was going to stop by and do a Q&A. And then, stay to the end, we're giving away a big screen. <laughs> that was... <laughs> By the end of that, we were all a little loopy. Oh, but yeah. Was, I will never, ever do that again, but it was worth doing once. The best part was that big screen TV. I think we got to a point where we were just like, well, we might as well... St- stay and see if we won yeah. the TV. And the first person who drew, you had to be in attendance to win, had left. Oh. And everybody booed. I remember that. But oh my, nothing like seeing the area in Hollywood with the man's Chinese, the morning after 24 of just dead. <laughs> yeah, this was like a... Uh, Never again. Was Friday or Saturday? It was, like a, it was like a... I think it was like a Saturday into a Sunday. It started like Saturday yeah. morning. And it was... It was, was work so, Never uh, again. <laughs> I, I distinctly remember by the end of this, and this is one of those you had to be there moments, but you know, when they would do, if you've seen an episode of 24, 
you know, they'll do, you know, they do previously on 24 and it was, you know, the president is in danger. My family's involved and someone I work for is, you know, responsible or something. And we would all be going at the end, you know, the president is in danger. Ah! Yes. My family is involved. Whoa! And someone I work for may be involved. Eee! And that's basically what kept us awake for the last several episodes. I think in the middle of the night, too, or somewhere in the early a.m., they started running around with the camera getting, like, little spots for the program. And everybody's like, I think it was, like, 24 weekends was the catchphrase. And you were like, everybody's like, 24 weekends. (laughs) Come on, this is the Terry's amnesia part. We're all taking a nap now. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. That was, yeah. (laughs) We have stamina. Not good stamina, but stamina. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. And I think we also, one of our first outings was the movie, the James Gunn film Slither with no effects. Oh, yes. We saw a very early cut of Slither. Yeah, you're right. With very rough effects. It was fine. We also saw an early cut with somewhat finished effects of uh, James Wan's Dead Silence. Oh, yeah. This was back before we were in a position where we couldn't go to test screenings. Oh, no. This is is one of our best stories. (laughs) Oh God! Uh, because remember, we were in line. It all they said was the new film from the director of Saw, and oh, yeah. and they came in line, and they were asking people questions. They were trying to grill people to weed out the people because if you were an industry person, you could not be at test screenings and have and working at IQC, we were considered industry people. Yes, and you were a critic at Valley Scene, so you were definitely not allowed there too on that. And no intent of reviewing the film in its present form. But right. Yes. And they came to us and they said they were they were asking questions of people like what brought you to the brought you to the uh, film. And and I didn't want to sound you're like say something dumb. Yeah. But like I like horror movies, but I'm like I don't I want to sound dumb, but I want to sound kind of smart at the same time. So they asked me and they're like, well, I go, well, I would like to, I'd like to know what Lee Wanell is doing outside of the Saw world. And they, and she goes, oh, Lee Wanell, because James Wan, Lee Wanell, I mixed up the names. He wrote the <laughs> film we were going to see, but they were not promoting yeah. it that way. And she goes, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. You a fan? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I like it. I like his stuff that, you know, so I check this out. And she goes, oh, okay. And we sat down and then you went to go get popcorn and the, and the lady came back to me. She goes, hi, Brandon. I'm like, I'm like, hey. And she's like, oh, uh, so so what, what kind of stuff do you do? Where do you work at? And I was like, I work at Best Buy. <laughs> and she's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. What, what are you into? Like, what? And she was grilling me. Like, she, she had her sights on me. And then she left, and you were still gone. And she came back, and she goes, hey, Brandon, Brandon. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, hi, this is, this is Lee Wanell. And it was him. And and he was like, hello. Oh, he's like, how are you doing? She goes, he's a big fan of yours. He's excited for this movie. He knows you wrote it. And he's like, oh, really? Well, I hope you enjoy the show. I was like, oh, man. I made a mistake because that's not James Wan. I was like, I mixed their names up. <laughs> and then you sat back down and she was like, hey, we'd like to have you guys for a focus group after, which is keyword for we're going to get your names and blacklist you. Yeah. And we left right after the film. <laughs> Great. Yeah, but not without your amazing scorecard. Because it was Dead Silence was the movie where it's about a you know possessed ventriloquist dummy stuff type type like that didn't have a title but in the suggested title you put Ventrilla Quest. See, I could have sworn that was you. No, that was you. I'm it was a okay. Stroke I'm of brilliance. I'm happy to give you credit for that joke. I was, but I will take that's fine. That was all you. That's <laughs> funny. Yeah. I could have sworn it was you, but that's yes. Then you know because it was kind of you know, if you've seen Dead Silence, it's as much of a you know, adventure film, and, you know, it's more like The Ring than Saw. And yeah, they didn't have really a working title, so Ventriloquest. It was funny at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but you introduced me in the world of, like, you know, I was into, like, reading reviews, critic things, but you were the first person I ever met, like, you wanted to be the critic. Like, a lot of people out in L.A., they were maybe writing reviews and stuff, but they really wanted to be a screenwriter or director, like all this stuff. But you just, I was like, wait, you want to be this? And then you introduced me to this whole new world, which, you know, started informing my interest of it with your, you know, box office analysis and, and then, you know, wanting to be a film critic and taking me to these critic screenings, which were, I've seen films because of you in some of the oddest places, because that's where they're holding a critic screening. 
it was really interesting. So what brought you to just criticism overall instead of being on the, like, I want to be a screenwriter, creative side, oh, I, actor? I'm a failed creative that's bitter and resentful that my dreams didn't come true. <laughs> no, I went to school for film theory criticism. And yes, I moved out into L.A. with you know theoretical ideas of doing something in the film industry. Cutting trailers always seemed to be a, something I was kind of good at. But before I was able to get an entry-level job at any of the trailer companies, I fell into the DVD thing, which frankly paid more money. Mm -hmm. So those kind of became golden handcuffs. But during that time, I had inserted uh, an ad for, I think it was a bi-weekly rag called Valley Scene Magazine. And, you know, they were able to get me into the press screenings. You know, it was no pay. It was just something neat for me to do. And I did it. Skipping a little bit here, I had my I, I met someone, we got engaged, we had a kid, we got married, which was all intended, is the opposite order. She just turned 13, actually, my my mm. my first daughter today. And if you you know knew anything about how hard of a baby she was in the first four months, you know, before our wedding, you know, the joke was always, Oh, did you get married because I was you know, because of me? Like, no, honey, we got married despite you. <laughs> um, <laughs> She's she was a very challenging baby, but anyway, around 2008, I started being a lot a little bit more aggressive in terms of pursuing the screenings on my own. I sort of would pay attention to who was in the subject line from the emails that Valley Scene was sending to me. So you know who was in the studio or what have you. I started blogging for myself on uh, what would become Mendelssohn's memos, and that was just something to do because you know being a parent of a colicky toddler didn't give me a ton of free time and i was still working at the dvd place and around 2008 i started trying to go after screenings myself um the first one was the dark knight i mm -hmm. literally knowing i would fail but i i knew there was a screening in what's now the the, the big Sidmark down by the lax airport so i drove down there with a copy of valley scene magazine i said hey can i come in and they said, of course, no. And I said, that's fine. Can you give me some contact information that I can call you so I can get the next couple screenings? And they did, and I did. And that was the first one I ever did for myself. And from then on in, along with the writing and the blogging and all that stuff, I was basically making my own way into these critics lists with mixed success, understandably, because, you know, sometimes they care more about the outlet than who you are, and that's fine. Right. So I did, you know, I basically, I, I wrote for myself for five years as a hobby until Forbes hired me as one of their contributors. And through luck and happenstance and okay, fine, a little bit of talent, that became my job. And I've been doing that for about seven and a half years. Obviously, I, I had kept in touch with Brandon during this time, even when he moved back to Indiana. And I had actually switched jobs. I had gotten out of the DVD business and I had become a paralegal. And I had gotten what, frankly, was a full-time job and asked Brandon, hey, I want to keep the blog going, but I'm not going to have time to put in as much content as I'd like to. Do you think you can contribute every once in a while so I can keep the machine rolling? And you did. You did a massive and, frankly, very insightful blow-by-blow -blow analysis of the James Bond series. And from what I gather, when I started doing Forbes, that's when you started your Naptown Nerd blog, and that started mm -hmm. you on your path to fortune and glory. <laughs> yeah no i believe we had you called me when you got the forbes gig and you were like oh like as if i was gonna be like no no i, 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 I felt i owed you a phone call more than just the mass right. i appreciate that but you told me you would give me the keys to that site i was like nobody nobody wants to log yeah. into memelson's memos for peter's <laughs> points but so it, it was what i needed like i got first you got me to write i mean i think i'd written a couple reviews for you yeah uh, for movies you didn't see, like before yeah. you brought me on with the James Bond stuff. When I wrote my first two reviews f for the James Bond or the pieces for the James Bond, I registered the Naptown nerd name. I'm like, okay, after the James Bond, I'll just launch off into my own. And then you're like, hey, you want to do, and you know what? I'm just going to stay here for a while at the Mendelssohn's Memos. And I was comfy. I was like, you know what? I'm Brandon Pierce from Mendelssohn's Memos. That's fine. And then when you did that, you finally kicked me to actually start getting into my, my own blog. And within a month of that, I was at Why So Blue. Like I was, I was co-writing Why So Blue and Naptown Nerd until I started Cult Cinema Cavalcade. And I was like, okay, that's one thing too many. And that kind of, and now it's resurrected just because uh, I just need a personal place right now to share info about things. But yeah, that was, uh, 
Interesting times and and since Forbes, you've I mean you've taken off. You've your name gets tossed around and like I take it for granted. I'm not Scott, but you got to be on a Batman Blu-ray once. Yes, and I, I was a talking head on the 25th anniversary documentary for Batman. I've done a couple, a few talking head things, not any in a while, just because I've been the flavor of the month for a while. Life goes right. on, but yeah, that that was neat. Uh, that was in in 2014. It's a bucket list thing I have for myself. Is like I just give me a talking head on a DVD, then I'll quit everything. I'm done. <laughs> no, but I mean, you've had interactions with. I mean, some people that you grew up reading and, yes. and enjoying on a more face face basis with. I think with there's a little network of us from your tree of things are interconnected, like with you know the Aaron Newerth out now and just a bunch of different people. So the the out now universe or something I don't know. Yes, but uh, and it's weird how critics do have that because if you look around at other sites and stuff, you'll have little clicks of people that know each other, kind of how that works in the world. And you have interactions with filmmakers and stuff that like you and don't like you at the same time, but no sweat off your back. I try not to take it personally, and I would assume they don't either. Yeah, you know my thing is that in their shoes, they shouldn't be thinking about me at all. <laughs> right, right, right. And most of the time, I mean, the one thing I have loved about your writing and discussing film with you as collaborators, friends, whatever, is that you have a good conviction and you're also honest and th- in, in a way that's not harsh, that's not crude. It's just you lay out facts about certain things, especially with box office analysis. You're not picking on anyone. There are stats that you bring out that are almost like that are really cool. I like, and it's almost like those weird stats sometimes in sports that they might pull up where they're like, Oh, he had a, this is the fifth guy to have 30 points on April 3rd with two, two rebounds or something like that. And it makes sense. And it's educational as well. Um, Uh, I appreciate that. I I do try to put the work in. Yeah. I I know what I know about the box office because of you and and being your friend and then also reading. And, uh, you know, I've had the Tomb Raider trap, in my lingo since I, I met you way before you were you were saying tomb raider trap back in 05 <laughs> so and now it's now it's commonplace you go on like twitter and stuff like that and you you will find someone using that on oh, a regular basis there's something it's basically when a anticipated and well-hyped movie does very well despite it not being particularly good it often does not leg out you know, it's a very front-loaded run. And then a couple of years later, you get a sequel that's actually a noticeably better movie, but it underperforms or flops because once bitten, twice shy. Uh, named for Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, which I have all, long argued is a much better film than the first Tomb Raider. Other examples offhand, uh, Angry Birds 2. Out of the Shadows? Yes, TMNT, Out of the Shadows, which is easily, by far, the second best Ninja Turtles movie ever made. Oh, Other sure. than the one from 1990. So, you know, stuff like that, where you have the brand and the IP or some other factor, you know, makes it a bigger hit, not necessarily in relation to its quality. You know, people showed up to Da Vinci Code because they read the book or they had heard about it. But then two, three years later, the much, much more fun Angels and Demons, which didn't flop, by the way, but it made a lot less than Da Vinci Code. And the other thing is just, you know, the quick kill blockbuster, which I've been talking about that since Batman Returns, because that was where a movie that is... Very anticipated, very hyped. You know, it's a preordained it. It opens huge, and it drops like a rock. But it opens so huge, and you know, it still makes money for the first few weekends, first few weeks. That it's still a huge it, even if no one really liked it that much. Not to pick on Batman v Superman, but Batman v Superman is a pretty obvious example. You know, the movie made eight hundred seventy-three million worldwide from a four hundred twenty-four million dollar global opening. Another example, and I think this is important, is Warcraft. You know, people like to throw around Warcraft as, oh, you know, the Chinese people have no taste. They loved Warcraft. Warcraft was more front-loaded in China than it was in North America. Mm. You know, that movie made 200, give or take, $220 million in China from $90 million in the first 48 hours. So they all wanted to see it. They all came to see it. They all came out holding their nose and telling their friends not to see it. You know, Godzilla is another example. Do you think with our regularly quick kill blockbusters being a regular thing now do you, that's the reason for our severely shortening windows from yes. theater to home video but i think like something can still be made like it's what 17 days for universal now is that what a yeah. 
And if you, you tell me Fast and Fu- you don't want that third week Fast and Furious money. Well, <laughs> like, it's a choice. They can yeah. they can you know it's it's a case by case basis. Yeah. And if I'm being optimistic, which I know is dangerous, but if I'm being optimistic, I have to assume that this is for movies like Gem and the Holograms, which you know opens to a million and a half dollars, mm-hmm. closes out at like four, and you know is out of theaters in two weeks. Yeah. And. For a movie like that, yeah, there's no real reason for you to wait 90 days to put that on DVD. I get it. Yeah, and, you know, I might not like it, but I get it. Or The Snowman, which yeah. made like seven million bucks. You know, if you have something like Get Out that drops like 30 percent in its f- first weekend, and you know, you know, ends up doing like seven times its opening weekend, no, you're not going to pull that from theaters and or put it on PVOD in the third weekend. You're going to let it play out. Right. It's a it's an estimated bet. Yeah, and you know, even a lot of films that we consider to be very leggy, they do do most of their money in the first five weeks, give or sure. take. Uh, you know, Spider Man, Frozen, yada yada. Well, Frozen, I think, was a little leggier, just because there was nothing else to see that for families that season. I think also they want to be in a situation where they can put, ideally, a greater variety of content into nationwide theatrical release, knowing that hey, you know, the people that really want to see this in theaters will see it in theaters. And then after 17 days, it'll just be on VOD. It might front load them even more if people know it's coming to VOD sooner and they want to see it in the theater and they will don't want it spoiled because once it's on VOD, I mean, open chatter is going to be much bigger. Well, I mean, yeah, open chatter is, I mean, there there is a certain film that I have not read it, but the plus synopsis is already on Wikipedia. You you can put two and two together, but I don't want to, you know. But yeah, the, the double-edged sword of that is that if people want to see a movie and they miss it in the first weekend, then they might say, eh, I'll just wait two weeks and you know watch it for 20 bucks at home. Right. I mean, yeah, it's optimistic to say that the, the people that weren't going to the theater anyway aren't going to go to it any more than... It, you, the drop-off of people who might now wait instead might not be might be less. Yeah, and there's a lot of unknown variables. First of all, you know, if it's only Universal doing that, then what does that mean for Disney, Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. whatever? And if it's only AMC that's taking advantage of this, well, what does that mean to Regal and Cinemark and Arclight and the Laramie and all those chains, let alone the mom and poppers? You know, you can speculate to your heart's content, but until this is put into practice, and frankly, it probably won't be for a while, just because Universal's next two big movies, No Time to Die and Candyman, are both MGM movies anyway. Right. So they will, in all likelihood, they will not be party to this program. I don't know off the top of my head what Universal's first 2021 release is. And, you know, I don't think they're going to do this with Minions and Furious 9. Yeah, probably the summer movies will hit the normal, unless they tank really bad, but... Yeah, I I think Universal, to its credit, saw the storm coming and pulled all their stuff way in advance and put it way into the future. So, theoretically, when things are quote-unquote normal, they're going to just kick ass in summer 2021. They've got, you know, Minions, they've got, you know, F9. If it finishes in time, Jurassic World 3... And if they have to move No Time to Die again, then they'll have that in 2021. But they, they've got a stacked deck for at least next year. But yeah, I, mean, I, I, I could spend the whole podcast talking about right. the health of each studio is you know, right now. I just, let me just say this. I don't think it's a coincidence that right now the big Disney movies that are coming back to theaters are the Fox films. Right. <laughs> it's not just contractual, although it is contractual. Yeah, that's the people are like New Mutants. Just put that digital. I'm like, no, there were, the agreement was that thing has to hit the theater. That's the if they could, they would have done it by now. Oh yeah, <laughs> they would have put it on VHS on a shelf at a store no one buys <laughs> things from. That's what they would have put it on Betamax. There you go, CED New Mutants. <laughs> it's retro, Divix. like our posters. Remember Divix? Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah, watch it twice and it's done. Your HD DVD. <laughs> when the crime of the century brings two nations to the brink of war, the world must turn to two living legends. I read about these guys, and they're supposed to like yell at them, try to make faces at them, but they'll never move a muscle. Here, watch this. That is the biggest damn beaver I have ever seen. Roy, stop it. Hey, look, the queen! She's mooning us! 
America's favorite heroes. Hello, ladies. Are together again. My father's been killed. My sister followed the murderer to London. Let me see if I can get the facts straight. You have a sister? Introduce me. If you break her heart, I'd break your legs. That's fair. I want these men found. I can already see the headlines. Royal family eliminated. Come on! What in our history together makes you think I'm capable of something like that? Shanghai Nights. I look like a fool. You have to open your mind to other cultures. This country blows. Yeah. Uh. The film today we're going to be discussing is Shanghai Nights, the 2003 sequel to Shanghai Noon. And if you're wondering, like, why is the first episode Shanghai Nights? <laughs> what in the world? Like, why are you launching this show? I'm sure it's questions or causing maybe a whimper in terms of audience excitement, but bear with me. There's a lot of meaning to this. We're doing this as a kind of like an inside joke, maybe, or just inside <laughs> knowledge. Years ago, I can't remember how many, but I think there was the anniversary of the HHWLOD network, which is run by Mr. Jim Dietz, who's a friend of ours. We've done many podcasts with him. He does the Nothing's On podcast, many other shows. They were celebrating like a milestone of how many years they'd been putting out podcasts. And everybody who was involved with them was supposed to make like a 20 favorite films of all time or 20 best films of all time list. And we were on the Out Now with Aaron and Abe side of it. And it was you, myself, Aaron, Abe, and I believe Maxwell Haddad going over our list. And you had a bombshell at number two. And Shanghai Nights. And needless to say, I'm going to have to single out Shanghai Nights. Yes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) um shanghai nights is one of those movies that i think i like more than anyone else on the planet we were quite surprised it was it was it was a shocker nobody was expecting it was probably the highlight of that show was that reveal but i think you talked about batman more than that because that was your number one of course so here we are that movie was the follow-up to shanghai noon this podcast is a follow-up for me this called Simna Cavalcade and then this movie discussion will be a follow-up to that moment on Out Now with Aaron Abe so we're just following up the following up so that is why this is the movie we're starting this show with it was directed by David Dobkin mainly a music video director he'd done some for Coolio and Tupac and currently doing Maroon 5 but he was coming off a film called Clay Pigeons and then he followed this film up with uh, Wedding Crashers, Fred Claus, The Change-Up, that Robert Downey Jr. movie, The Judge episode of Glow Hand on Netflix for Marvel. And his most recent film was Eurovision, the Euro- Netflix oh, okay. Will Ferrell picture, Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams, that gotcha. uh, was hot for a mill- millisecond in June, like all Netflix originals. That's Yeah, that, like all anything Netflix yeah, they've, is. They've mastered the quick kill blockbuster. Shanghai Nights stars Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson returning as Chan Wang and Roy O'Bannon. Aaron Taylor Johnson as a little tyke is in this. <laughs> Tom Fisher, Aiden Gillen, Fan Wong, Donnie Yen, and Oliver Cotton. They're joining the cast. Jackie Chan, Owen Wilson, the only returning members from Shanghai Noon. Were you a fan of Shanghai Noon first? Yes. I was uh, I yeah. Okay. It was a, a solid picture. I enjoyed it more than the Rush Hour films. The Rush Hour films are fine. I just felt, as a Jackie Chan fan, relatively speaking, I enjoyed the Shanghai Shanghai and Noon because it was he felt more comfortable there. It was more you know, more traditional Jackie Chan like action. I think with this series, you know, Rush Hour that kind of cemented him as at least a staple in American cinema for at least ten years. Probably he had a good run. He had been up and coming. It was building since the late 80s. And But if you've seen Rush Hour, that's just another studio doing something Jackie Chan's done before. Here he's licking, in this series, he's licking his chops. Like he's got, he's like doing his stuff with new props, new environments, new costumes, new sets. And you can tell he's 
exploring his creative endeavors. That one does a lot of old West stuff. It's a it's a good movie. It's basically, I mean, it is what it is. It was Rush Hour in the Old West. Pretty much, that's the selling point. I'm sure the pitch was, but it's very successful in its own right. And then it didn't do that well. I was looking at the box office. Is did it do well for its time? Was marketing not as big a push then? Or well, it did fine. Fine. It did. Yeah, like that's a real day yeah. weekend. Um, I guess Mission Impossible Two, which mm-hmm. that film snagged one of the biggest at the time three day openings of all time. Yeah, it did. I think fifty seven million over Friday Sunday, over a ninety million dollar Wednesday to Sunday opening. Uh, Shanghai Noon actually Disney sneaked that the weekend before. So for those that didn't want to see Dinosaur, we went and saw Shanghai Noon instead. Good choice. I know it opened to around nineteen million over the full weekend. Mm-hmm. I think it did like sixty domestic. And about yeah. 99 million bucks on about mm-hmm. a $60 million budget, which isn't great. I'm kind of surprised there was a sequel. I assume it did well on video. Right. That. That's what I was looking at. And the sequel just a little bit under. Like they're they're about even Steven. I think the sequel did better in America the second time. Like I think it outgrossed the original in America, but less overseas. Oh, uh, yes. It, it was it a cheaper film, too. February, I think. February 2003, just before a Valentine's Day weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it opened right before Daredevil, and it earned eighty-eight point three million on a fifty million dollar budget. So again, it did. They both did fine. I mean, the Rush Hour films were ridiculously successful. Right. Even the third one just didn't cost too much; it cost like one hundred and forty to make, but it still did like I think like two fifty in the summer of two thousand seven. Then, of course, the second Rush Hour that almost broke the opening weekend record in two thousand one. Right, sixty-six dollars and it led out to like 226 in north america that's still i think the biggest buddy cop buddy action movie of all time unless there's some pixar or marvel movie that kind of sort of counts i guess inside out haha yeah most most pixar movies are basically buddy films anyway and this is after in between the first one and this one owen wilson did i spy with eddie murphy so he was he was on the uh you know grab a guy with he was doing he was the ryan reynolds of his day right yes He's whoever stars with Denzel Washington on a given day of his time. Slightly more complicated joke. It didn't quite work. <laughs> um, for the record, I don't know if it's my second favorite movie of all time. I don't <laughs> it was, that, it was that day. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I haven't numbered them in a really long time. Well, and it's a silly uh, thing to, to, to number yeah. anymore. And I decried, even back then, I'm like, 20? You realize films have been around for over 100 years? I'm this many <laughs> years old, and you think I can just whittle it down to 20? <sighs> I know what my favorite movies are, but do I have to number them or put them in an order? I don't know. Some days. At the end of the year list, I usually you know chicken out and do alphabetical order. Which is a smart uh, thing to do. As far as the movie, I saw it on opening weekend, opening night, not thinking anything other than this looks cute and I liked the first one and I loved it. <laughs> in terms of the stuff that I go to the movies for, it was almost a perfect film. It starts in this very gravitas, pretentious way with the mm-hmm. cape-wearing supervillain showing up. And, you know, it's Aiden Gillen wearing a cape. And Oh, I thought he was Frank Langella Dracula. Yes, like, exactly. Perfectly. It was almost like with like a little anime spin on him. <laughs> it yeah, was yeah. Like. it was the kind of sequel that remembered that it was a sequel. So the two mismatched characters who kind of didn't like each other in the first film, but then got to like each other by the end. At the beginning of this film, they like each other again. They right. have their differences. I'm not going to do a synopsis of the picture, but unlike all due respect, Rush Hour 2, yep. where they kind of go back to hating each other again. Well, they um, do the thing where they have to meet again yes, in this yes. movie, which is a little... They quickly abandon the Old West in this movie. It's present for three minutes this, this one's in because we moved to new york for a good chunk of the first act yes but i did notice you talking about them liking each other i noticed what was really strong here in this movie was there was this between the two leads and then the two villains the counterparts there was a theme of guilt in this movie for choosing your own path and not the one that someone yes. else had laid out for you whereas chan wang his was his father's destiny for him and with Owen Wilson, his was Roy, his character Roy was with what Chan Wang maybe he thought had laid out for him and yes. what he was doing as versus the Rathbone and Wu Chao's thirst for the throne, which they think they have to be and they deserve that. They're looking for a wealth and power where the other two are looking for a relaxed happiness. Yes. And it's kind of those tables. And it's like 
this movie's a lot more brilliant than you might give it on the surface. But I, I was I was really into that that theme that they had going on. You know, to, to quote that line that I like using from an otherwise unremarkable episode of Heroes at the end of the first season. The heroes, Wilson and Chan, they're looking for a happy life while the villains are looking for an important life. Mm-hmm. And the action scenes are easily the closest thing we've gotten to his Hong Kong slash Chinese pictures in terms of the quality of the choreography, the creativity of the choreography. Right. The length of the action scenes. The only thing I don't like about the action scene is that there's extended cuts on the DVD that are even better. And I understand pacing and, and flow or what have you, but... I wish there was a way to watch the film with the extended version of the action scenes. We could bring out the extended cut on, uh, what studio was this? Was this Disney? Disney Plus could put this out. <laughs> Take that Snyder cut. We have, <laughs> if it was we HBO the... Max, they might be able to do it. One thing I like about HBO Max is if there's an extended cut that ever existed, it will be available. The extras of that movie, furious seven extended cut. We got it. Fantastic four extended cut. You can pick whichever one you want. I like HBO Max. I think of oh, all no, I think it's uh, I was just the one that I most, on it. Yeah, it's the one that I most go to just for fun. Yeah, it's got a great catalog of various years and various territories of film. It's it's wonderful, and you get all the HBO stuff on top of it. I mean, I wish it would be on the Roku Jeez. box instead of having to use my <laughs> crappy TV's yeah. app thing. But hey, it's pretty cool, and I have a lifetime membership to it if I have as long as I have AT and T internet. So. Yep. That got that going for me. The movie does it, it comes at a cost of Lucy Liu getting jettisoned from the cast. Yes. To to make this work. As well as Brandon Merrill, who were the two female leads in the last movie, but her only movie is Shanghai Noon. And I guess she's a rodeo champion. So maybe she's that was just a one and done for her. From what I gather, and I don't want to spread well, I mean this is something I read like twenty years ago, but Apparently, there was slight friction with Lucy Liu and Jackie Chan just because she wanted to do more of her own stunts. Okay. And allegedly, he had issue with that, and I wonder why, because I've certainly seen my share of Jackie Chan movies with female action heroes. I mean, obviously, Michelle right. Yao in Super Cop, and frankly, uh, the female lady in this film, who, spoilers, I guess, kills one of the main villains. Yeah, Chan Lin. She's, she's for some reason, instantly iconic looking, and in her movements and her performance and her and her costuming just like wow okay i want to i'll take an action figure of that please <laughs> it's a very dynamic portrayal and yeah she's basically there as a love interest technically she gets captured but she's not a hostage she's just there to you know as a fall guy for the evil plot and again at the end of the day she kills donnie yen at the end yeah donnie yen who by the way just kicks jackie chan's ass during their big fight scene yeah uh, that's another thing I, I find fascinating about this movie is that jackie chan fights both villains and does terribly in both fights. Right, uh, he, right. He only wins the sword fight through a little bit of luck and a certain amount of self-sacrifice. He basically you know, does a suicide play, not unlike Sherlock Holmes' Game of Shadows, where he's clearly outmatched, but the villain's not willing to kill themselves. Well, it's funny, like Lucy Liu during this time, uh, the first one kickstarted her to shoot end up at Charlie's Angels and, and Kill Bill, Volume 1. This was her sort of, you know me on, you know, Ally McBeal, now enjoy me in this film mm-hmm. type thing. And yeah, I assume they were being made around the same time anyway, but Charlie's Angels came out in November of that same year, 2000. Yeah. So maybe that's why she was like, hey, I can do this. I was doing it for McGee not too long ago. But yeah, I, her presence is a little, is missed a bit, but I, I get they want to get the, get the boys going, yeah. get them doing their old thing again. It's gleefully, historically inaccurate and doesn't care. Yeah, it's having fun yeah. with names, with events. Yeah. Play, uh, Jack the Ripper shows up for a comedic yes, Jack bit. Jack the Ripper shows up. Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes, who gets the Cumberland Man film where a random supporting character gets the funniest line in the movie, for me anyway. Yeah. You know, where he basically remarks that, you know, the gimmick is that the villain is 10th in line for the throne. And his plan is to... Oh, yes. Everybody. I had that. I wrote that down. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's, he's going to King Ralph everybody. He's going to... Basically, it's very strangers on a train. He yeah. kills Jackie Chen's father and steals a jewel or something that allows Donnie Yen to take his place on the throne. And in exchange, Donnie Yen's going to machine gun all the royals during a big gathering. But miraculously, Rathbone's going to survive. So he will, by default, be the new king. And if you've seen Eurovision, which also contains a King Ralph moment in the first act, you must assume that David Dobkins likes King Ralph. Um, <laughs> the line, I think Owen Wilson's where he's getting put to death 
or he's being tortured. He hears the plane. He's like, you're like 20th in line for the throne. He's like, he rolls his eyes. He's like, 10th. <laughs> and then, of course, Artie, who's the inspector, runs into him at a gathering and says something effective. Hey, I know you're only 10th in the line for the crown, but you'll always be number one in all hearts. <laughs> oh, and Gillen's a treat in this movie. I mean, he didn't have, he had like queer as folk before this. This was a big American yeah, this was the uh, first time him. I noticed. And he he's was, just a, you know, it's a very classical villain. He, and I don't know whether how much of the sword fighting is him, but who's ever doing it is a phenomenal sword fighter. And the film climaxes with a with a Jackie Chan, uh, Aiden Gillen sword fight atop Big Ben, as all movies should. Right inside and, uh, atop Big Ben. Yes, I'm sorry, inside Big Ben, which is that's movies in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a terrific, terrific sword fight. I, yes, I would put it up there with The Empire Strikes Back and The Princess Bride and Rob Roy. Oh, yeah, it's good. You know, one-on-one duels. The funniest thing is the was the year before was Attack of the Clones. And yes. it's almost similar to, with reverse roles, the Anakin Skywalker with two swords against, or two lightsabers against Count yes. Dooku. But way more athletic and way more thrilling. Yes, and again, Lucas is playing a different ball game with that. True, true. I wasn't, I wasn't meaning to dog yeah, yeah. on Attack of the Clones. I was uh, <laughs> calling no, out Star I mean, Wars for right my first episode. Certainly the most low-key lightsaber fight in any of those films. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, it was more of a light and shadow fight. Yeah, and, exactly. And I understand that. That was just my description of the differences, no, no, not, I, a, I, not a slight. I just uh, want to protect you from hate mail. Right. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> going after Star Wars. Got to get, get the listens. Probably the most universally disliked one of all nine, give or take Rise of Skywalker. Oh, that's another conversation. I think like the fights and the choreography, like a lot of scenes, the musical cues are beautiful in this. Yes, they, they are silent film era evoking, and you get the blend. It's almost like a beginner's guide to showing like Jackie Chan. He like he incorporates kung fu into Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, safety last type bits, and and it really. Takes so maybe it's the British settings and the classical look, but yes, and it's, it's a period piece, so you're willing to go along with a bit more flights of fan. Mm-hmm. He's got the funny one with the revolving doors. He's got a singing in the rain moment. It's just wonderful. For years, even before I had seen Rumble in the Bronx, the line was always that Jackie Chan was an action star, like a silent film star. He was very comedic, like Buster Keaton and yada yada yada. And this film basically was a subtext made text. Yeah. where a number of the action scenes really feel like silent film bits successfully. I mean, they're also terrific action sequences. You're right. There's a scene in the rain bit with the umbrellas. There's a Keystone Cops bit. Mm-hmm. There's a big fight in the library with revolving doors and trying to protect artifacts from being smashed. And, and, and trying to act like a wax figure to yes. get high people. Like, yeah, it's... yeah there's, there's a certain matinee pulp attitude to the action scenes. It uses cliches that are so old-fashioned they're almost new, because you just you know outside of maybe the Indiana Jones films, that's the kind of game that movies don't play in as much anymore, even back then. Yeah, uh, let alone now. And this movie is really tied together by those sequences too. Yes. Like there's, I think the story's pretty good. There's a lot of good drama, but there's there's some areas where it could tighten up and get to where it's going quicker, but. I don't know what action piece I'd sacrifice. No, it's, it's, it's certainly them. not a plot-driven movie. I think it it works because of the action scenes and because the, all of the characters are fun. They, you know, they're good company. Mm-hmm. You want to hang out with these people even when they're not kicking each other. And that, to me, is one of the keys of a good action picture because you can't just have nonstop action. You have to have people that you want to hang out with even when stuff isn't going on. The dialogue is very clever. It's very quippy and punny and mean in a gentle way, if that makes sense. It's a very gee whiz movie. You know, after the prologue, there's almost no killing. Right. It, it, it follows his labyrinth rule, which you have an initial scene of comparatively brutal violence to establish the stakes, and you never have to go that extreme again. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty pretty dark opening with his father's death, but you clearly establish our big bad, the stakes, there's a, the familial relationship. It does in a way that Rush Hour 2 kind of fails in reminding you about the previous movie, but it's not as intense. It's like a calm version of like, these are what these guys are like, this is what their relationship's like, and here's a hijinks thing that they get into. And it's kind of more natural, whereas some of them like to be bigger, louder, just to quickly remind you and get back into the saddle, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> getting into the sequel to the buddy action thing. And I like that it's set up that nobody's where we thought they would be at the end 
Well, yes. I mean, Jackie Chan is, but not where he wanted to be. He wanted to be with Roy. I mean, we see them last in Shanghai Noon, spotting a train as sheriffs, and that's not happening <laughs> at the beginning of this movie. Things aren't all happy in Shanghai. <laughs> and sadly, I mean, we set up for another adventure in what? Um, Shanghai Hollywood. That would be the next one, but it doesn't happen. I didn't, you know, there was talk about it a couple of years ago, but honestly, I think the time has passed. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm not one of those people that demands a 20 years later sequel to everything I vaguely liked back in the day. Right. Um, Do the thing again. Do the thing. No, the same thing. <laughs> I mean, if the yeah. money had been there, uh, sure. Right, yeah, if, if the movie had been more successful and they had knocked one out, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, that would be one thing. But this movie came out 17 years ago. Yeah. And since then, you know, Jackie Chan is mostly, especially over the last five or six years, has stayed, you know, making Chinese movies that have done mm-hmm. very well in China. Yeah. He did sort of a loose rush hour knockoff of Johnny Knoxville, of all people, that in 2016 made like 250 million in China. Right. Skip Trace, it's called. I'm not going to say it's good because it's not, but, you know, it is what it is. He did do one movie that uh, with Martin Campbell called The Foreigner. Oh, Pierce Brosnan. Yes, Pierce Brosnan. It's sort of a mix of a classical revenge thriller and a deep dive political drama. It's basically about you know Jackie Chan's character, who is a former soldier who also suffered from political violence at a very early age, whose daughter is killed by an IRA bomb. This is during a time when the IRA is sort of called a truce, so you know everyone's freaked out. And Pierce Brosnan is a government official trying to maintain the peace while Jackie Chan basically goes rogue on a mission of vengeance. It's a very good film, and it's very much, you know, a, an against-type turn for, for Jackie Chan, and it works as both an action thriller and a political drama. Pushing the two together and watching them cause conflict for each other is very effective. But other than that, he's done, uh, he was terrific in the Karate Kid remake from 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think if that had come out in November of that year, he would have gotten an Oscar nomination out of it. A couple times. One was, la- uh, well, last decade meaning the oh he did a new police story called new police yes. story and then uh, then in the previous decade being the tens he did another police so he seems to go back to the police story and they're kind of reinvent what he does a little yeah. bit where That's he's at in life he just yeah, he sort of uses that franchise to sort of reset the wheel a little bit mm-hmm. he's an academy award winner now though too yes he got an honorary oscar a few years one ago. of my favorite honorary oscar wins of all time like yeah was, so yeah, the film, you know, Shanghai Nights came out in February 2003. It opened in second place to How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, understandably. It was a good concept with a peak rom-com Matthew Conaghy, a peak rom-com mm-hmm. Kate Hudson. My um, wife loves that movie. Yeah, it gets the job I, done. I've uh, I've sat through it a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, neither of them are hard on the eyes, so it's pretty painless in that right. regard. And then they got back together and searched for gold, and everybody was... Everybody rejoiced. It was called Fool's Gold, and well, it was. Okay. It's one of those movies that I like probably more than anybody else, mm-hmm. along with Disney's Meet the Robinsons, which is another one that I am right. obsessively right. fond of. Well, when it came to picking one of those, I was like, well, I don't think you've written about this one as extensively as Meet the Robinsons. So I, I do find reasons to bring up Meet the Robinsons more often, just because you know you're talking about Disney tunes. That's something that comes up more often. But yeah, it's, it's one of those movies that, yeah, I, I think I like more than basically anybody else. To me, it's not a perfect picture. In fact, I watched, I rewatched it for the first time in a while a few months ago. And yeah, it's a little overwritten in terms of some of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. I mean, through no fault of his own, Owen Wilson often talks when he doesn't need to. Right. And you're right. Plot wise, it's a little raggedy, but there's just so much movie there. Yeah. You've got the sword fights, you've got the carriage chases, you've got the you know, the various you know hand to hand combat, you've got the Jackie Chan versus Donnie Yen. Yeah, and Jackie Chan loses to Donnie Yen quite brutally. Yeah. Which is frankly kind of shocking for the egos on those two. When he fights Jet Li in the Forbidden Kingdom, neither of them are allowed to lose. It's very boring. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, without skipping too far ahead, one thing I liked about the big Vin Diesel rock fight scene in Fast Five is there is a distinct winner and loser in that fight. So yeah, it, it, it's one of those movies that just gives me everything I want about those kind of movies. It's certainly a slight picture. I would argue objectively, it's Jackie Chan's best American movie, um, yeah. regardless of you know. I mean, I'm sure. You know, and one that not, wasn't repurposed and brought to America. 
Yes, yes. I mean, yeah. obviously, I'm not going to fight somebody over, you know, Drunken Master 2 or Operation <laughs> Super Cop. Again, it's one of those movies that I just love more than anyone else in the world. Yeah, it's a terrific movie. I think it. I think the British setting does more favors than the Old West, which is a, it's an yeah. interesting experiment, but there's an elegance to it, and it just really matches with Chan's sensibilities, and he just is having a ball with this, and I, I feel like he could have come up with like 20 more set pieces if he would have been making a huge, huge 10-hour movie, but felt like it was endless, like the creativity there, and, and I think Aiden Gillian's a good villain, and Donnie Yen has a nice little spot here as well. And his death was cool. I, we've talked about it like a bunch of times, but letting Chow Lin shoot him with the firework uh, after Jackie Chan loses is a nice touch to it. Yeah. You know, it sort of compensates for her being, you know, damseled briefly in the third mm-hmm. act. And I like the fact that in comparison to Rush Hour 2, which I enjoy, where, mm-hmm. you know, Chris Tucker got more action because he was a bigger star in between the two movies. Mm-hmm. In this film, Owen Wilson has noticeably less action in the first film. Right. I wonder if he enjoyed his time on this. Cause... Well, no. I mean, he seemed to be, you know, I remember him making a comment that, you know, you know we make a great team because Jackie Chan does all of his own stunts and I do no stunts. Paraphrasing, but yeah, that was a surprise to me. Again, you know, comparing it to Rush Hour 2, which had come out two years earlier, where all of a sudden Chris Tucker can hold his own in a fight scene. He, you know, gets his own, you know, sub villain to kill. Seeing that he just fresh off a crouching dagger hidden dragon and somehow he beats her. The Cloverfield Paradoxes, Shang Chai Chi, yeah. <laughs> Poor wow. gal. Yeah. What else? So this is just where we cap off this conversation with just a little bit of what else uh, we're taking in besides Shanghai Nights at this time. Some recommendations or things that might go on. Scott, what do you have going on? Any reading any books, checking out any new TV shows, movies, or any articles you want to spotlight that you've written? I am almost done with Teenage Bounty Hunters, which I'm enjoying. It's a Netflix show. Mm-hmm. Um, premiered last week. Oh, this is going to air in a while. Last month, huh? August. <laughs> By the time this airs, I will have seen Bill and Ted face the music. Uh, I got the screener, but I'm, I watched Bill and Ted for the first time in God thirty years this morning, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to watch Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey tomorrow. Just, which honestly, Bogus Journey is really good. <laughs> that's funny because a lot of people say that, and I'm not going to. But I saw it once in theaters when I was 11 and didn't like it. So I'm right. really curious how I'm going to feel this time. The first one it was one of those movies that I saw it once. I thought it's fine, and aside from being in this business, I would never have given it another thought again. Gotcha. Um, I think the third act is very strong and it really plays up the fish out of water aspect. And obviously the two of them have wonderful chemistry together and it's fine. It's a solid three-star picture. Hopefully by the time this drops, I will have driven to a drive through So I see the new mutants, not drive through a drive in. The yeah, new that's, mutants. that's my plan for new mutants. Yeah. Uh, is, well, new mutants and tenant is drive in when uh, like a week after the weekend it opens. So it's less crowded and I'll just take it in that way. Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do about Tenet. I, I, <laughs> I could, yeah, we'll figure it out. Hopefully I'll, hopefully I'll have seen it by the time this airs. Right. I live in California where, you know, they're not doing press screenings because it's not playing in California. And you're not Tom Cruise flying to another country to see the movie. <laughs> I, it's good that his passport let him in. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Although he's, you know, he was probably out of the country anyway. You can't check his passport if he just parachutes in. <laughs> or maybe he was wearing a mask over a mask. Oh, that's true. <laughs> and with with California, they're not even showing tenant the drive-ins because then the, the policy is that unless indoor theaters are open, you can't you, uh, you can't show it a drive-in. I'm assuming that's just to appease the theater chains. I get it. I don't like it, but I get it. It's a complicated situation. There's no right answers here. Right. Um, Myself, I'm taking in right now. I'm I just recently finished a book called Taking Shape by Travis Mullins and uh, Dustin McNeil, which takes a long, hard look through the uh, development of every movie in the Halloween series up to and including the 2018 one. Got a lot of interesting, so a lot of stuff I knew, a lot of stuff flushed out that I knew, and some tidbits I had no idea. So it's so real. If you're into reading books about films or deep dives. That's really good. They have a sequel book scheduled to come out that's going to go over sequels that never happened with the films that they do touch upon in there. So that's a really good book. I moved on from that to a book um, just starting now called We Believe the Children by Richard Beck, 
which goes over the uh, McMartin trials and the satanic panic era of the 1980s. Well, it doesn't speak an opinion. It's just facts, which is just showing how much of bullshit it is. And if you notice in our current times, we're kind of going through a rerun of that stuff right now. Film-wise, can't think of what I've just recently watched, but aside from Shanghai Nights for this podcast, I've just reviewed the Flash Complete Six Season Blu-ray on whysoblue.com, which complete with air quotes as that wasn't finished. Um, <laughs> and uh, on, on Netflix, I've started uh, The Umbrella Academy, which is on its second season, but I, I've not, I didn't. People like to recommend shows, and there's all these hit shows, but I only have time for certain things because you know, writing, watching, studying, all sorts of things. I get to it when I get to it. And I'm, I've been watching it slowly. Like I've only watched like one episode a night when I have watched it. And I think it might be a show that I, you need to watch more than one in a sitting. Cause it's, it's this is the flash. No umbrella Academy on oh, Netflix. Just, yeah, yeah. Cause it's oh. kind of, it's not clicking with me as much as I, I hear it's, it's great. It's basically X-Men with the, the personalities of the breakfast club. I may, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it go through, but maybe I need to watch multiple episodes in the night for it to really cook. But that's what how it is. What do you think of the sixth season of The Flash? <laughs> I don't think anything. Anyone other than the second half of Batwoman really was. Yeah, I think that great this year. I um, hope it's just because crisis sort of spiked the bunch on everybody. Yeah, I like the concept of <laughs> two two different arcs in the season. Yeah, um, splitting that up, but. Show slowing down. I imagine it's only got a season, maybe two left. But at its worst, it's still a fun show for my family to watch because my kids like to watch it. They've grown up on this show, so this is like their their one they watch. So yeah, this was maybe it's the weakest season. I'm not. <laughs> I don't. I would. Yeah, I, I, I was wasn't yeah. happy with any of the CWDC stuff. Yeah, Legends uh, has been my Legends favorite, and I was the most uninterested. Yeah. This was this season. I think. Legends had a problem this season with just I it was Katie Lotz just too busy with Crisis because she barely yes. appeared and she's like the biggest strength of the show. Yeah. They, they wrote out and then rewrote in Talia Ash in a way yeah. that and she's terrific. It was fun watching her play two different versions of that character. Yeah, but it just it was it, it required set up an exposition that took away from just storytelling. Correct. Yeah. So I, I I'm look forward to I, I love that we got this universe of superhero shows on the cw and you know they have them for all they like i got family like a supergirl flash i can watch i watch my kids and legends and you know batwoman it's gonna be interesting next year. i have a review for that up too if you want to check that out that, that was a couple that, weeks i thought it was fine yeah uh, mostly because i i think to a certain extent it wasn't terribly impacted by crisis yeah, they did. Uh, they had the most interesting aspect of it with the dual yeah. dual sisters. So I thought that was really nifty, um, and it got real. I was really enjoying it towards the end a lot more. But now they're going to probably have another first season <laughs> again, pretty much. But why didn't they just whoever they cast? Why didn't they just recast the same character? I don't know. What is the fear of that? Like, I need to have. I'm gonna. So with this show, one episode a month's going to be roundtables. Maybe I'll talk about like ca- the fear of recasting nowadays for a topic uh folks if you want to hear that let me know i'll make it happen faster but i was like oh they have a chance to do something big here because nobody had been recasted i mean i think the last major one that people gave a pass on was don Cheadle as roadie yeah yeah you know give or take the dark knight with rachel dawes but that was you know that was that was before iron man too so yeah it was before yeah i mean now it's a oh big you gotta write them out you gotta no you don't you know, they didn't write out James Bond. He was James Bond. <laughs> like, maybe it's because I've grown up on just an era of not putting that kind of effort into sequels or not caring. Like, I think we care yeah. about unimportant continuity way too much nowadays. Yes. So that's a, a topic for a later show down the road, yeah, Scott. That's a cultural situation. The teaser of well, how great this program's going to be. But, <laughs> We're dropping Easter eggs and setting up world building for future installments. Oh there, no! There we go. I'm what I despise. This, this, this is the dark universe right here, folks. Oh. No, um, this is just a feature length prologue. Oh well, that, that'll. Uh, on that note, we'll wrap up, wrap up this episode. So, Scott, thank you for helping kick this off. What avenues are best to keep up with you and what you're doing right now? Well, obviously, I, I write exclusively, by choice, for Forbes. 
So, you know, Google some variation of Forbes, Scott Mendelson, the ticket booth. My Twitter feed is at Scott Mendelson. And that's basically, and I have a Facebook page that's mostly for kid pictures. Uh, you'll find most of my random rumblings and or whatever on Twitter. The stuff for grownups. Yes, the stuff for grownups. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Excellent. So you can find additional information on this program at brandonpetershow.com. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at brandon4kuhd. This episode is over. I'll return tomorrow with 4K Blues Day. And keep safe, everyone. And keep the positivity in your film chatter. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. Number one in our hearts.